He was a Jesuit professor of philosophy. She was a Catholic nun. He taught at St. Louis University. She dealt with the throwaways in Calcutta, India. In 1975, John Cavanaugh went to Calcutta, India to meet Mary Ther Mother Teresa. Some of you know my own wife, Julie, met Mother Teresa when she was in college and impacted her powerfully. Cavanaugh went for three months to find the house of dying and to find out best how he should, he should spend the rest of his life. Cavanaugh was in a pivot time of his life, wondering what he should do. When Kavanaugh met Mother Teresa, he asked her to pray for him. What do you want me to pray for you for, she replied. And then he uttered the request that he had ca carried thousands of miles to India for. He said, clarity, pray for me that I have clarity. No, Mother Teresa answered, I will not do that. When he asked her why, she said, clarity is the last thing you are clinging to and must let, be let go of. And when Kavanaugh said that she, Mother Teresa, always seemed to have clarity, she responded with laughter. She said, I've never had clarity. What I've always had is trust. So I pray that you will trust God. The word trust comes up in the text of Scripture that we will look at in Isaiah chapter 36 and 37. In fact, it's repeated quite a bit. The word trust means to lie down prostrate to throw oneself down upon the face and depend. The NIV uses the word rely on. And so the name of this message comes from Psalm 36, verse 5, and it's entitled this, Whom do you now trust? The ESV translates that the best way and adds, adds the word now. So it's not just historical, but dramatizations of human events that we will look at Scenes that act out our beliefs. The grand story of Scripture is one of redemption and adoption of our Heavenly Father to those of us who are east of Eden, who have rebelled. The grand story is our Father's rescuing work and witness through His people. And we will meet a king by the name of Hezekiah, main character. And we will encounter him as he reminds our Heavenly Father of a covenant that he made to Abraham in Isaiah 37. That God's people were to be a blessing to all the nations. That his chosen people, the children of Israel, that you will see here today, will rescue and work and use those people as his witness, the same as his beloved, the bride, the church, as we join him on mission to share how Christ has changed our lives. So this morning, our passage of Scripture is a historical interlude in our sermon series on the Gospel of Isaiah. Isaiah's name literally means the Lord saves. That's what he does. 2 Timothy 2.13 says this, God cannot be faithless to himself. He will back his word. Chapters 36, chapters 37, 38, 39 stand as a hinge of a poetic prophecies. 1 through 35 and then 40 through 66 play out the themes that we have heard again and again and again and again. And you'll see them played out in this passage of Scripture. One, you'll see what happens when someone mocks the holiness of God. 
you will see the judgment of God, the second theme that we talk about a lot in this series. The third theme that you'll see in this passage of Scripture is God's grace and mercy when we throw ourselves at his feet. And then you will see the hero, the hero, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the great Redeemer. In chapters 36 through 37, the ministry of Isaiah is now pinned into a timeline of history. History pins this at 701 BC, where we see events and empires and kings. Isaiah previously had prophesied that what we'll read about is true. In Isaiah 10, he says that Assyria will be broken to pieces. In Isaiah 14, he says that the power of Assyria will be done, broken by Jehovah himself. And Isaiah 31 says this destruction that will happen will not happen by a man. Oh, no, no, no. No, it's going to happen by Jehovah himself. That's right. So let me give you a little background of the historical account because I think it'll help so that you just don't go, oh, my goodness, there's names and places and all this stuff that's coming at me. If we were at a meeting together, I would encourage you to open up your Bibles to three different passages of Scripture, Isaiah 36, 37, and then 2 Kings 18 through 20, and 2 Chronicles 29 through 32. It's printed in the back of your worship bulletin, all three of those. They're printed right there, and they give you the historical background of what we're going to read. It will fill in the gaps. You may say, how did you know that, Pastor Kirk? Well, when you read these, what we would call parallel, 36, 37, 2 Kings 18 through 20, and then 2 Chronicles uh, 29 through 31, it will expand and help you. Now, during this time, Jerusalem had expanded. And, uh, and, and that's where we meet Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the second thing that you need to know about background is that there's two main characters that we're going to encounter right here. One is Hezekiah. The second one is Sennacherib. Let me tell you about Hezekiah. He is the fourth king that Uzziah... Uh, works under his administration. Here's why that's significant. Because Hezekiah's dad, Ahaz, was a real creep. He was a jerk with a capital J. For 16 years he served and he made false idols. But not Hezekiah. 2 Kings 18 tells us this. He did what was right, like King David. And here's what you need to know about Hezekiah, why he's so significant. Because no other king other than David and Solomon do you find out more information about. Why is that true? Well, because Hezekiah was like David. He had a heart for God Almighty. And Solomon, he was like Solomon in that much of his ministry was about refurbishing and purifying the temple and worship. And when he was in rule, Jerusalem expanded in all directions. It was good. So know that about Hezekiah. Here's the second person you need to know. You need to know a guy by the name of Sennacherib. He too followed his father, Sargon. His father was also a jerk and expanded the Assyrian Empire with great force, as did his son. And the account that you'll read, you'll read about victories that happened in the north, happened in the Mediterranean Sea, and then in the southwest. 30 miles south of Jerusalem at Lachish, a prominent town. So he's coming off of winds. And the other person that you'll hear about is a spokesperson. The, ESV, the NIV calls him the field general. 
or field commander. ESV and other translation uses the word Rebekasha, Rabesheka. And it's basically a military term for Assyrians, similar to what we would say if you were in the military and say, the general stopped by or the admiral stopped by. You would know who this person was. Make sense? But the thing that's most important, even with the background, with the parallel accounts, is do not miss the blasphemy and the hubris that goes on. Don't miss the mocking, which leads us to our first point. And our first point is this. A mocking voice for trusting our Father is common in every generation. Don't miss that. Because as you read about it, you'll see it come up again and again and again. One commentator says the use of the psychological uh, manipulation in this warfare is masterful, absolutely masterful. We should not be deceived to be enticed away from the way of faith, nor fall for the promises and delight of the world. A Bible scholar and commentator, Alec Moiter, who I found great help with in working through these passages of Scripture, said this, God is good to his promises. The word of God can be counted on. Is that your story? It's my story. As we bury God's word in our heart, your story might be one of scripts of those who mock your trust in Christ. That might be your family, your extended family, or your closest friend, or maybe even it breaks your heart to say my spouse. It might be work associates or teammates or teachers and profs who mock the trust that you have in Christ. We live in two worlds that seem unblendable but are inseparable. Everyone is caught up in this. The idea that you see what you get in the appearance of wisdom to live for now. But this passage of Scripture encourages us that we are to live by faith even if the world is shifting underneath us and there's a national crisis like there was here. Our walk with Christ impacts our worldview, impacts our world vision with practical faith, and the world is daring us to live by faith. Does living by faith really work? Right here, right now in the world we live in, is living by faith merely optimism? Is faith in Christ a smart policy for life right now? Is God the king of the world that we live in? Yes, emphatically, yes. God is right here, right now, and we humbly and serve him. So I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 36. It's on page 615. We'll read quite a bit. Uh, we'll read all of 36 and most of 37. Reading in Jesus' name. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And when the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to Launder's field, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to him. And the field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have 
counsel and might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look, I know that you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of staff which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it, such as the Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who depend on him. But if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't that the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying of Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar. Here comes the psychological warfare. They're playing with their heads. Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you could put riders on them. They can't. How then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you're depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Further, I have come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord. The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Did you catch all the different words that were, the, the numeration of the word trust? In the NIV, it uses the word depend, depend, but actually the word is trust. And the word trust means to literally lay your life, lay, prostrate yourself and depend on. Seven times that's used. We know there's a key point that's trying to be made when the word is used seven different times. It's found in verse four, two times. It's found in verse five. It's found in verse six, two times. And in seven and in nine. And the word in the NIV is the word depending. Depending, who are you gonna depend on? Continuing on, then Eliakim and Joash said to the field commander, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. Did he listen? No. But the commander replied, Was it only to your master and to you that my master sent me to say these things and not to the people sitting on the wall who, like you, will have to... Ready? You have to eat your own excrement and drink their own urine. Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, Hear the words of the great king, the king of, Hez of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Second key word. Used also seven times. Deliver. Means to purge. Means to plunder. These are the master plunderers. Assyria is the Nazis of their day. They know how to plunder. This is what the king of Assyria says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink fruit from your own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain, a new wine, a land of bread and of vineyards. Don't let Hezekiah mislead you when he says the Lord will deliver you. Have gods of any nations ever delivered their lands from the hands of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Seraphim? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who are all the gods of the countries that have been able to save their lands from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joash, son of Asaph, the recorder, went to Hezekiah, 
with their clothes torn and told him what the field commander had said. Chapter 37, Isaiah. When King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes. He put on sackcloths and went into the temple of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and the leading priests, all wearing sackcloths to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. And they told him, this is what Hezekiah says. The day of distress and rebuke and disgrace is when the children come to the moment of birth and there is no strength to deliver them. It may be that, you're, that the Lord your God will hear the words of the field commander whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God and they will rebuke him for the words of the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, pray for the remnant that still survives. When King Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, tell your master, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Don't be afraid of what you heard. Those words with the underlings of King Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen. When he hears a certain report, I will make him want to return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down with the sword. And when the field commander heard that the king of Assyria had left Lachish, he withdrew and found the king fighting again in Libna. Now Sennacherib received a report that Turkah, the king of Cush, was marching out to fight against him. When he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah with this word, say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let the God you depend on deceive you when you say, Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Surely, surely you've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely, and you will be delivered? Did the gods of the nations that were destroyed by my predecessors deliver them? The gods of Gozan, Haran, Resfa, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar. Where is the king of Hamath or the king of Arapad? Where are the kings of Lair, Seravim, Hena, and Evah? Watch how Hezekiah trusts and lay prostrate before our father. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and then he read it. And then he went into the temple of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, Enthroned before, between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and you have made earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherim has said to ridicule the living God. It's true, Lord. It's true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste of all these people and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone, fashioned by human hands. Now the Lord our God, deliver us from this land, so all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. He's appealing to Abraham's covenant that you, Israel, will be a blessing to all the nations. It wasn't supposed to just be a club. It was to be a community that welcomed the broken. And Hezekiah pleaded, pleaded with God, pleaded with him. Verse 5 in chapter 36, I know we read a lot of scripture, but did that jump out on you? Did it jump out on you when he said, you say you have counsel? You say you have counsel. Is it just mere words? Well, 
depends if the word is living or not, I guess, right? If the word became flesh and lived amongst us. And as a follower of Christ, yes, I do depend on his word. I depend on his word. And I rest on his word. I rest on his living word. Question, what was he ultimately mocking? What was he ultimately mocking? You see it in verse 16 through 18. His fatal step was this. He equated the Lord with the gods of the world. There is no one like him. Martin Luther put it this way in the first commandment. The first commandment was this. You shall have no other gods. And this is what we teach our children. Maybe you've been taught by this. What does that mean? You, it means this, that we are to fear and trust God above anything else. We are to trust him above anything else. We are to obey him. And this has always been a challenge in history. Did not Adam and Eve, were they not challenged by this? Did God really say this? Even our Lord, even King Jesus, our Savior, Redeemer, best friend, crucified one. Even he was tempted about this when he was in the desert. Bow down to me. <clears throat> Just bow down to me. Ultimately, he could have avoided the cross. Even in the book of Revelation, when we get to Revelation chapter 2, verses 3, and it talks to us, the bride of Christ, that our Father knows us. He knows us. And he calls us to walk in purity. I know you. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 says this. Make no mistake about this. You can never make a fool out of God. And notice the contrast. Notice the contrast in the mocking. When you get to the end of chapter 36, one commentator has said this. Notice the contrast of the field general posing outside the walls of Zion. The contrast is Hezekiah prostrate within the walls of Zion, going to him in prayer and saying, you're the only one that I can run to. The only one I can run to. I came across this quote. I've been thinking about it all week. It came in my devotions this week. Vance Havner an itinerant evangelist, South Southern Baptist preacher from North Carolina, an evangelist. Billy Graham calls him one of the most well-read evangelists. He wrote this, and I hope this just buries in your heart all this week, because you may not agree with it, but I think you'll come around to it. Vance Havner wrote this, you cannot break the law of God. Nobody ever broke the law of God. You break yourself against the law of God. No one can break, can break the law of God. Nobody ever broke the law of God. You break yourself against the law of God. Wow. So, Pastor, where are you going with this? Here's where I'm going. Here's where I'm going once I find my right slide. There we go. You see faith at last in chapter 37. 
A humble posture of trust is seen by our Father in every situation. Who will you now trust? Who will you now trust? He sees and he hears your prayers. He said that word to our friend Zachariah at Christmas. Zachariah, old man Zachariah was Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. He and his wife wanted to have a child for years and years. And I can't get this verse out of my, out of my head. Luke chapter 1, verse 3. I've heard your prayers, Zachariah. God hears our prayers. It may not be in our timing. Oh, certainly not. But the Lord had brought Judah to the end of her resources and had not abandoned her. And he fights for the city and for God's glory and his fame. And our only hope in suffering is to lay ourselves at God's feet. Once again, Alec Moitier wrote this, the power of prayer does not reside in the place it starts, but in the place it reaches. I love that. The power of prayer does not reside in the place it starts, but in the place it reaches. And the kneeling king on earth may be wholly unworthy, but trust is placed at the one who shows his strength when we are weak. He shows how mighty he is in our weakness. Shows he is king. And as the reigning king on the throne, he is full of grace. He is full of compassion. He is full of power. He is full of faithfulness. Hezekiah turned to Yahweh, the Lord of heaven and earth, and said, there is no one like you. They have mocked you. And it's because Jehovah loves the daughter of Zion as he loves you with such an adoring love that he will move in this national crisis. In verse 6, he says, Don't be afraid of what you have heard from these youths, or the word literally means flunkies. Put them in their place. Because you prayed. God acted. You are not mocking just anyone. You are mocking the living, holy God. He gives them a beautiful sign. You, you can read this on your own, but he gives the beautiful sign in agriculture. to say, here's what's going to happen. You've been under siege the first year. You'll make it. The second year, you'll make it. And the third year, there will be a great crop. And this will be the sign that I am with you, and it is my zeal that will do this. My zeal, God wants to accomplish. So, there's a really cool part in this story that I haven't read yet. You ready? Go to verse 36 on page 618. We're going to enter mystery territory. You ready? You've been warned, so no being crabby at the end of the message and say you didn't explain it. We're going mystery. Verse 36, then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, they were all dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew, and he returned to Nineveh, and he stayed there. History tells us about 20 years later, there's a gap there, there's a 20-year gap later. Verse 38, one day, while he was worshiping in the temple of his god, Nisroch, his sons, Adamarlachek and Sherazah, 
killed him with the sword, and they escaped to the land of Ararat. And his son succeeded him as king. The angel of the Lord did that. It would be totally appropriate to say, who is that? What is that all about? There's three different views. I won't bore you with the three views, but here's the thing that you got to wrestle with with mystery. You ready? This is really neat. The only time we see this phrase, the angel of the Lord, is in the Old Testament. <clears throat> we see it in Exodus chapter 12, verse 23, with the slaying of the firstborn, the angel of the Lord. We see it in 2 Samuel 24, 15, and 17, with the pestilence during David's reign. The only time we see it in this proper way, you see the term in the New Testament, but the article is added. It's not in the original text. The only time we see it is in the Old Testament. Here's why that's significant. It's significant because Christ is really clear in the New Testament. I think this is the pre-incarnate Christ, the grand hero who fights on our behalf. He's the one who gets the glory. He fights on our behalf. By the way, if I'm wrong and we get to heaven and you come up to me, I'll owe you pizza. That's how it works, okay? But this is what Unger's Bible Dictionary says. It's great. Said, he said, of this great destruction, there is no word or hint in Sennacherib's inscriptions. It is indeed not to be expected that such a record would be made under any circumstances. And then it says this, and I just chuckled when I came across this. The Assyrians report only victories. At any rate, Sennacherib never invaded Palestine again. You think? With those kind of casualties? Yeah. They were at their wit's end. They called out to God Almighty to intercede, to have mercy on them. Such, they were at such vulnerability. In 37 verse 3, it says this, Our young mommies don't even have the strength to finish the pregnancy. They don't even have the strength to push out the baby. But God is real. God intercedes on our behalf. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure what your, what your story is. And you might even ask the question, why in the world is this in the Bible? Why is this in the Bible? God hears the desperate situations that we are in. He is not far away. He will forgive you for lost opportunities. He will give, give you a foothold of strength to find courage in committees that you serve on and boards that you serve on and raising your kids. Realize the drama you are in and God is in your crisis. Maybe you have squandered. Maybe you've squandered opportunities. Christ redeems again and again and again and again. Where's the proof? Right here. This is the meal. The meal of forgiveness and the meal that comes with this promise to strengthen and renew you, to encourage you physically, tangibly, supernaturally, mysteriously. This is our meal. And so I ask you this question. Just like the field commander asked all those people in Jerusalem, 701 BC, in whom do you now trust? I invite you before we
hear the words of institution, to bow your head and close your eyes, to confess to the Lord, to turn to Him, to ask Him for forgiveness, to confess your sins. Here's the word of the Lord. The story of our Lord's suffering and death is given to us in the Holy Scriptures. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals. One was on his right and the other on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. And the soldiers came up and they mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, well, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals hung there, hurled insult at him. And he said, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. The other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence. We're punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. What a story. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it. They put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head, gave up his spirit. The Bible tells us, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. <clears throat> and then this wonderful promise. You ready? 1 John 1, 9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here are four questions that we ask each time we gather. Number one, do you believe in the promises that are in the scriptures? Number two, do you recognize Jesus' presence here in this meal? And number three, do you repent of your sins? Number four, have you done the hard work and as far as it is unto you, made reconciliation to folks in our fellowship here at our church? Hard questions. Questions that need the grace of God. Amen? So let's stand together. I invite you to stand. We're going to confess the words of the Apostles' Creed. For 2,000 years, this has been what Christians say. What's a Christian? What does a Christian believe? Consider this the skeleton. Orthodoxy, the backbone, doctrine. Here's what we believe. Let's confess it out loud. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, 
the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. So we ask the question, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Yes. It's not the bread that we break, the participation in the body of Christ? Yes. Because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share in that one loaf. Let's have a seat and just some instructions, some reminders, if you will, that we have four different stations here in the sanctuary, two in the front and two in the back. Uh, you go to the one that's closest to you. We ask that you'd come and take it and then go back to your seat. We'll all partake in it together. There are gluten-free wafers, I think, at each of the stations. So if you need a gluten-free wafer, please take part of that. Here at Bethesda, we practice what's called an open communion. What does that mean? It means this. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you love him, if you know him, you may not be an official member here, you might be a guest this morning, but you love Jesus. He's forgiven your sins. This table's for you. There are some uh, verses there as well, too. So if you have a little one that's next to you, uh, you might want to take a verse. You might want to take a verse if your little one's not here as a grandchild and uh, give it to him. That's totally legal, too. You can do that as well, too. We're going to sing. Karen's going to lead us in a song. If you want to sing, you're welcome to do that. If you just want to listen to the music, let it wash over you and let the words um, soak into your soul, please feel the freedom to do that, too. Okay? Friends, this is our Father's table. This is the grace He's given to us. I invite you to our Father's table. Amen? <laughs>